Jesus takes everything that you are and he uses that in amazing ways. Some of you will go all over the world in the name of Jesus. Some of you will just go to Chicago, right? Whatever that means for us, give us a boldness to keep proclaiming the gospel. prayer to the Ephesians over us this morning. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for being a part of worship today. I entitled the sermon, God's Irony, today. And uh, a a caveat, if you are an English major, you might punch some holes in my definition of irony. Um, uh, Alanis Morissette wrote that famous song in the 1990s, Isn't It Ironic? And turns out most of what she said was ironic wasn't really ironic. So the most ironic thing about the song was that it's not so ironic. And so I I understand that... uh, Anytime you talk about irony, you have somebody saying, that's not irony. So just kind of go with it today, all right? Um, There are lots of kinds of irony. There's situational irony, like um, a fire truck on fire is a situational irony, is an example. Or it's a lot of bad signage irony, uh, like this, or this, or this. We can spend an hour I, I, just Googling that one. Um, there's one definition of irony that I want to use today, and it states that irony is incongruity between what might be expected and what actually occurs. Incongruity between what might be expected and what actually occurs. And one thing that is so incredible about God is that on the one hand, there is this eternal consistency. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not frivolous. He is not temperamental. There is an everlasting congruency of his love. And yet, 
there is an amazing incongruity between what might be expected and what actually happens as God moves throughout history. God's divine irony is splashed on all of the pages of Scripture. I mean, you just go all the way back. The call of Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel, to bless all nations, you know, through his lineage. And here he is 100 years old without kids. The, the irony of King David, a shepherd boy, at the bottom of the totem pole as far as like power and prestige in his family, becoming the greatest king in Israel. Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery only to end up number two in command of Egypt, thus saving his whole tribe from famine. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Rahab, the Gentile prostitute, who not only brings victory to the people of Israel, but is the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus, right? And the irony continues through New Testament. Jesus, the king of the universe, is born not in a palace in Jerusalem, but in a stable in the backwaters of Galilee. News of Jesus' birth comes to shepherds, the lowest rung with a power ladder, and to Gentile astronomers. <laughs> there was irony in the parables of Jesus, like the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. There was irony in his miracles, like when he made the blind man see and then told the religious leaders that actually you are spiritually blind. There was irony in his words. He described the upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first, where if you want to seek your life, you'll actually lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, you'll actually find life. But if we use that definition of incongruity between what might be expected and what actually occurs, probably the most profound use of irony in the ministry of Jesus is his selection of 12 disciples. His disciples, his apprentices, instead of the best recruits with the highest marks from the most prestigious rabbinical schools, he chose fishermen. Fishermen. And not even fishermen that were good fishermen, you know? Think about it. Every time you see them fishing throughout the Gospels, they've caught nothing. <laughs> Jesus has to keep intervening, right? Their nets were empty, been fishing all night. Not only that, but they were impetuous. They were hot-headed, sons of thunder. So you have these fishermen, then you have a tax collector, and then you have a zealot who absolutely hates the tax collector. You have a doubter, you have a betrayer, you have a bunch of Galilean hillbillies. These men, they walk with Jesus and they listen to Jesus and they question Jesus and they eat with Jesus and they pray with Jesus. They do everything with Jesus day and night for three years. When he is crucified, they are devastated. When he is resurrected, they are ecstatic. When he ascends to the Father, they are perplexed. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they are changed forever. 
these unlikely men were ironically given keys to the kingdom by Jesus. And throughout the book of Acts, you see them speaking and healing and doing miracles, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not what you would expect. There is an incongruity between expectation and what actually happens. So, Acts chapter 4 is where we are today. If you want to turn there in your Bible, on your phone, or just look at the screen, or just listen, the focus is on Peter and John, who, if you were here last week, they have just healed a man who had been crippled for 40 years. This amazing miracle, this man who had never walked, he was expecting to get a handout, and Peter actually instead pulled him to his feet, his legs are completely healed. And so the response of the man who was formerly crippled was worship. He walked and he praised God and he leaped, he jumped. And the response of the people watching it was astonishment and wonder. And the response of Peter to their astonishment was he stood up and preached the gospel and called them to repentance. And God added to the number of those who are being saved. But then the response of the Jewish leaders to that sermon, well, that's chapter four. So let's get into it. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. I just want to teach as we go here. And so something to know about the Sadducees. They were sad, you see. <laughs> Sorry, that was a dad joke. That was a dad joke. Um, they were the ruling class of the Jewish society. And they were in charge of the temple, and yet they had no regard for God. Do you remember, like, Pharisees show up a lot, right? And they will continue to show up. Pharisees were like the, um, the strict legalist of the Jewish leaders. But the Sadducees were, would be like the, the liberal wing. They didn't believe in resurrection. They believed that the Messianic age had already come with the Maccabeans. And so they weren't even looking for a Messiah. They were wealthy aristocrats who had all of the political power and the favor of the Romans as long as they kept the Jewish people all contained, as long as they kept society in line. And that's why Jesus and now his followers were such a threat. So the annoyance of the Sadducees will evolve into all-out hatred and persecution in just a couple of chapters. But for right now, they just want to nip this thing in the bud. And so they seized Peter, verse 3, and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Kind of calm everything down. Being too loud. Sorry. Come on, it's a Taylor Swift. Never mind. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. It's just exploding. 
chapter 2, day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and preaches. People are cut to the heart. They say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And they do. And 3,000 were baptized that day. Then uh, later in Acts chapter 2, it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is just exploding. This is this gospel's going out like wildfire. We had our worship and baptism uh, night on Friday. And uh, we started with, I don't know, seven-ish people that got baptized. And, and then we all came upstairs and were worshiping. And then pretty soon I saw this whole pocket of people kind of leave and go downstairs. And it's like, what's going on? And they said, well, she wants to be baptized. I said, okay. So we went out and baptized her. And then pretty soon this other pocket of people uh, left, and we baptized her. And then this guy uh, said, I want to be baptized as well. God's been stirring me for a long time, and this, tonight's the night. And I said, okay. So we baptized him, and then another girl got baptized. And, and so it just kind of kept going. But this was a daily occurrence in the early church. God added to their number daily. So here, chapter 4, it's up to like 5,000 men plus women and children. This thing is exploding. So the next day, verse 5, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them with this question, by what power or what name did you do this? If you've been around the Gospels a bit, you'll recognize those names, at least two of them. Annas and Caiaphas were present at the trial, the arrest of Jesus. They were part of what got Jesus crucified. And they, as Jewish leaders, they had this kind of semicircle, this kind of, you know, Jedi Council thing where someone would come up and be on trial. And so here Peter and John are standing pretty much in the same place that Jesus had stood just weeks before. And Annas and Caiaphas are ready to stop this upstart. The religious leaders were so obsessed with having power and authority and protecting that power and authority at all costs. And so the question on their mind was, by what power and in what name did you do this? And verse 8 says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And you say, wait, 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 wait. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And they were all filled. It wasn't just Peter. It wasn't just the disciples, but all 120 gathered in that room were filled with the Holy Spirit. And here it says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happened? Did, did he leak? Did he need refilled? You know, what's recharged? What's up with that? Well, here's what's up with that. They received the gift, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that was, that was a, a permanent indwelling. But alongside that gift, the Holy Spirit, throughout the book of Acts, and I would contend continuing today, fills people at specific times for specific purposes. And whether that is to be encouraged or be, to be bold with the gospel, to have words, or to bring healing and to bring signs and wonders. And so... Here we have Peter, filled with the Spirit, stands up 
and boldly, boldly gives words to what's just happened. Let me remind you just for a second who Peter was. Do you remember, this is the same guy that on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Jesus had said, Peter, are you going to deny me? He said, no, I, I, I'm to the death. And Jesus said, actually, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. So here he is. He's in a courtyard. And he's not denying that he knows Jesus to the religious leaders and to those with all the power. No, he's actually denying that he knows Jesus to a servant girl who has absolutely no power. That's how freaked out, that's how timid, that's how cowardly Peter is pre-Holy Spirit. That same Peter now stands up in front of the most powerful people in Jerusalem and says this, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was raised, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. First, Peter says, just to be clear, we were arrested for an act of kindness. Just think about that for a second. But you weren't really interested in the fact that this guy can walk after 40 years. What you're really concerned with is how. So know this, all y'all, that by the name of Jesus, that's how this happened and for the third time in four chapters, Peter says, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And then he quotes Psalm 118, which talks about, foretold about the Messiah being the stone that the builders rejected, but also ends up being the capstone, the answer for everything, the one who has come to save the world. And then verse 12, which is a mic drop, if you know, for Peter, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is Lord of everything. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior of humanity. There is no one else. There's no power. There's no ideology. There's no philosophy. There's no religion. There's no intellectual assent. There's no politic. There's no authority. There is no one else and no other name except Jesus. Peter lays it out. And he lays it out in a way that is poignant and articulate and theologically savvy and bold. And the irony is not lost on the Jewish leaders. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men and really bad fishermen at that, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. 
So they couldn't deny the miracle, but they have to put a stop to this before it gets out of hand. They're scared of losing their status quo. And honestly, they're scared of the name of Jesus. And so verse 18, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So Peter and John, in, in a bit of you know, divine snarkiness, um, they say, hey, you all are judges. Tell us, should we listen to you or to God? As for us, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Decades later, John, who is here, um, will write a letter to the church in 1 John 1. Uh, he starts off that letter by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. We can't shut up about this Jesus. We've seen too much. <laughs> this, is, this is reality. This is life. This is truth. So all the court can do at this point is to threaten them. It, it's it's too risky to punish Peter and John because all the people were praising God for what had happened. I mean, this guy was 40 years old, and suddenly he can walk. So these guys leave the court with just a warning. And put yourself in their shoes for a second, okay? Here they are, standing in front of the most powerful elite in all of Jerusalem, the same people that had condemned Jesus to death just weeks before. So you got to think Peter and John are standing there assuming that they could possibly follow the same, you know, follow the same suit. That's, that could happen to them as well. And then suddenly the religious leaders say, well, just shut up and leave. So they got this warning. And so do they breathe a sigh of relief and go back to fishing? Do they dye their hair in beards and lay low for a while? No. They basically go to worship and prayer night. <laughs> they go back into the community and they tell the story of what had just happened. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices, all the people, raised their voices together in prayer to God. And look at their prayer. They start with who God is. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power, listen to that, and your will had decided beforehand should happen. So a couple quick things about this prayer. They start with praise, sovereign Lord. That word, sovereign Lord, really is saying, 
you're the only one who has any authority. You have created everything. You are completely sovereign. You have revealed your plan of redemption, going all the way back to King David, predicting this Messiah that would die for people, salvation. And that in your sovereignty, God, you worked your wills and plans, even through the hardened hearts and wickedness of others for setting up this epic rescue. Ah, sovereign Lord, all praise goes to you. They adore God, they praise and worship God, and then they bring their request to him. I think there's something in there for us, right? It's like, what are our prayers? We just jump right in. Oh, God, help me. But they start with who God is. They are aligning their hearts and minds with the reality of God's power before they ever ask. And then when they ask, look what they ask. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Consider their threats. God, we aren't asking you to wipe out their threats. Just keep them in mind. It's interesting because they themselves had been so radically changed by Jesus that they weren't all that concerned about getting their situation changed as long as Jesus was being glorified and the gospel was spreading. Do you get that? They weren't all that concerned about getting their situation changed because they themselves had been so radically changed. Does that mean we never pray for protection? Does that mean we never pray for, um, for God to intervene in our situation? Absolutely not. Absolutely. We, can, we are free to pray those prayers. But they start with the fact that, Jesus, you're enough. <laughs> and I want to live for your glory. I want to live for your name. And whatever else happens has to come under that. And the second thing they pray for is, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They're not praying for self-protection. They're not praying for vindication. Get them, you know? They're not praying for an elevation of favor. They're praying this ironic prayer for boldness to proclaim the gospel knowing full well that as they proclaim the gospel, they will most likely end up back in jail or worse. Paul, who is another example of God's irony, uh, wrote this to the Ephesians. He says, pray that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an, an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then the third thing they pray for, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
All of this had started when Peter and John were just going to the temple to pray. And here's this lame man, this crippled man. He reaches up and says, can you give me a coin? And Peter says, I don't have any money. Here's what I do have. And he reaches down and he pulls them to his feet who have been miraculously healed by Jesus. And so it's Peter stretching out his hand to pull him up. But it was actually Jesus stretching out his hand to pull him up. And what happened to that man was then he was welcomed into community, into worship for the first time in his life. He actually got to go to the temple. So God was healing his legs, but he was also, more importantly, healing his heart. Jesus transforms lives. So it's Jesus that's reaching down. It's Jesus that is stretching his hand. And the prayer of the gathered church is simply, Sovereign Lord, keep that going. Whatever that means for us, give us a boldness to keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep it going. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All through this passage, it keeps talking about the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. The religious leader said, by what power or what name did you do this? Peter says, weren't you listening back in chapter 3, verse 12? Peter heals this guy. Jesus heals this guy through Peter. And Peter immediately says, why are you staring at us? As if it was up to us that this man is healed. No, it's Jesus. It's the power of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Some of you are in community groups. And so you've been going through the book of Colossians. Let me just read a piece of chapter one, just about Jesus. Just remember we talked about use your minds and use your hearts as you listen to a sermon, but also use your imaginations. So can you just close your eyes? Let me paint this picture. Well, Paul paints it of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him. And get this, they were created for him. He is before all things, but also in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul prays this in Ephesians. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you will know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he's called you and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. 
That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and me when we are in Christ. And that is mind-blowing. And it's part of God's irony because we're just common. 2 Corinthians 4, you can open your eyes now. Don't fall asleep on me. I'm almost done. 2 Corinthians 4 Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He says, this is hard. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. He says, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul's right alongside the disciples. The religious leaders noticed two things about them, that they were unschooled common men and that they had been with Jesus. They were unschooled, common men. And as I was thinking and praying through this sermon, I was thinking about you all. You're not unschooled. And you're not all that common. And half of you aren't men, right? (laughs) So what does that that mean for us in, in this context. I mean, Paul says, you know, Jesus says, my, my power is made perfect in weakness, so I'll, I'll, I'll boast about my weakness. But you are, you, you are the, the top 1% of the 1%. You're some, some of the most intellectual, capable people on the face of the planet. You've been given the opportunity to study study at this prestigious institution. So what do we do with this passage where it seems like Jesus is using the unschooled, common, not very good fishermen? Here's the reality. When we submit everything to the lordship of Jesus. That is a a posture of weakness, of saying, Jesus, everything is from you and for you and through you. I can do nothing apart from you. And then Jesus takes 
everything that you are. And he uses that in amazing ways. And so some of you will go all over the world in the name of Jesus. Some of you will just go to Chicago, right? You'll be engineers, you'll be pharmacists, you'll be teachers. You will steward everything that God has given you. But when you've been radically changed by the love of Jesus, your prayers changed, change as does your whole motivation. So there is an awareness that we carry this in jars of clay, that when it becomes about our own self-sufficiency, when it becomes about making a reputation for ourselves, when it comes about your own resume, all of those things will never bring satisfaction. All of those things are temperamental. All of those things, in the end, are rather frivolous unless they are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. So, in Jesus, he takes us, whether you have a PhD or whether uh, you dropped out of high school, And he takes us and he forms us into his image. He lights a fire with the gospel that can't be put out. Oh, to grace, how great a death.